All right, Russell. Well, thank you for uh, taking some time to come on the show. It's good to have you and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to do this. Same. Uh, I know we talked a little bit before the uh, recording that I, I, I always like to start by kind of getting the background story of how people get into the positions where they are at this point. And, and we're sitting in the uh, Refugee Services of Texas, uh, Austin uh, offices in, in this location. Um, would love to hear just generally that story for, for you. How did you get here? What's sort of the path that led you to being interested in refugees uh, that got you to this point at, at this point in your life? Um, of course. And tell me if I go, I, it's a long kind of long winding story and uh, sure. let me know if it's a little bit too much. But um, so um, I grew up here in Austin um, and uh, went to University of Texas, uh, got an undergraduate and graduate degree in business. Hmm. And um, when I got my MBA, realized I had no interest in going into business at all, sure. um, moved to Houston and um, started work. I worked at the United Way and then I just started working in the nonprofit world and just kept doing that forever. Um, and um, while I was there, I actually went back to school and got uh, my master's in social work because I realized kind of that's the the path I wanted to take. So um, then um, in I had a, a few different opportunities to be in leadership positions in Houston. I was uh, at first my the first gig was kind of the interim executive director of the Alzheimer's Association. Um, and then um, the last job I had in Houston, I ran a Head Start program for about 1,100 three- and four-year-olds um, all over East Harris County. Um, and then um, I've got – my wife and I have twin girls. And before they got to um, kindergarten, we decided we wanted them to grow up in Austin. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to – come to Austin. I wanted to come back and she, she grew up in Houston. And so, um, we, uh, we moved here. Um, and I continued working in nonprofits. I worked for a, um, a, a organization that oversaw national service programs in, in, uh, in the state of Texas. Then I worked for, um, a place called youth launch, um, that engaged young people in service and uh, the program you may have heard of, um, I was uh, there when we started Urban Roots, which is kind of a farming program for inner city um, youth. Um, from there, then I went to, I was the executive director of um, Austin Child Guidance Center that does uh, mental health services for um, children and youth. Um, and I was there for about seven and a half years. Um, and, you know, 2016, um, I realized after the election um, that, you know, nobody was really fighting against funding for children's mental health, right? There was no, like, um, there was no institutional issues of, like, people saying, no, th- these kids shouldn't, these kids with ADHD shouldn't get help, right? And so I felt like I was kind of on the sidelines. And I, you know, like a lot of people after the election, um, wanted to find a way to get involved and kind of get into the fight. And so, um, and I had been at Austin Child Guidance Center for seven and a half years and had really accomplished most of the things that I wanted to. I'd really kind of set them on the path for kind of sustainability and growth. Uh, and was looking for that next challenge. And when I found out about this 
um, position um, and um, did some research and realized how kind of controversial like refugee resettlement had become when it is not a controversial thing. It's a it's a activity that this country has embraced for many, many years through all sorts of different administrations with different kind of um, philosophical underpinnings. Um, and only this last four years has it been um, of any, you know, has there been any controversy about uh, reselling refugees, you know, because, and I can, if you'd like, I can tell you a little bit about kind of the refugee resettlement process. Um, I would love to hear that. Okay. I, th I think uh, one one component to that story and kind of the arc of your educational and professional career, it seems like the the switch from business generally into spending your career or angling your career towards the nonprofit world. What what was appealing to you at that time in your life about that switch, um, and what were kind of what was your kind of reasoning or thinking behind why you wanted to move out of the the business world into something more nonprofit related. Sure. Well, so I mean, if I'm if I'm honest, I never kind of wanted to go into the business world. Right? So <laughs> I um, actually started in the honors engineering program at UT. Um, realized I didn't want to do that, <laughs> and um, after my freshman year, look for a place to um, kind of transfer my my you know physics and chemistry credits ended up actually over in the business school. Um, and I went into the honors business program where I got like an undergraduate degree in business and was already halfway to an MBA. So it's kind of like, it was just without really making the choice. I was kind of already halfway there. I also started volunteering, um, at different places and, uh, worked at the, uh, as a volunteer for the runaway hotline for five years and, and St. David's is, is kind of a candy striper and was, um, I did some kind of, uh, I worked at, uh, as a constituent, um, representative for, uh, Senator Lloyd Benson back in the day. Um, because I, I really realized at that point that I kind of wanted to go into social services. Um, and part of that is really uh, kind of reflecting on is my, my grandmother um, was kind of an icon in Austin. She uh, worked at the Hogg Foundation for, for many years. She was um, a very well-known kind of um, philanthropist and also just a, 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 a person who kind of was very caring and was very involved in kind of both aging and mental health issues. Um, and, um, in the seventies, she got together with, um, a gentleman named Willie Kasurik who had some, um, furniture stores and, uh, started the Austin groups for the elderly, which is a nonprofit that's, that's still around. Um, and they did a capital campaign, bought a building and kind of consolidated some, um, services into this building. Um, and so she was kind of always been like the my role model. Um, and so, you know, was kind of on like accidentally on the business path, did the volunteer work to find my actual calling and really kind of used, saw my grandmother as, as kind of my, my light to, to go toward. Um, and so, you know, graduating with uh, MBA, there, there weren't a lot of people recruiting for people like me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had, some interviews kind of, you know, with insurance companies and 
I had an interview to sell IBMs in Beaumont, Texas. Um, Fortunately, they didn't offer me that job. I would not have been good at that job. They would not have they, they would not have gotten value out of me on that. Um, and then uh, moved to Houston and just got a entry level position at the United Way, and just kind of have gone from there. It's like that's where I realized I really wanted to be in the nonprofit world, um, and um, figured out that kind of the on the I want to be on the macro side and the leadership and the building of nonprofits and. Um, and taking them from kind of where they are to where they can be. And in that calling that you alluded to, was that mostly an interest in giving back to the community or were there really specific issues at that time that you thought you really particularly thought might be well suited to address and help with? That's a, that's a fine question. And it's like, I've, I've talked to, I've got a lot of friends who are kind of leaders of nonprofits. Um, and, I, I, some of them have like a passion for a particular cause. I find that I'm, uh, often, um, involved in causes that, uh, are, um, children related. Um, but that, that's not necessarily, I'm more kind of a, um, a, a process and a kind of systems person. I, I like, like, growth and building systems and sustainability. Um, I love the sector itself and just the health and human services um, kind of from all different angles. I've been, you know, from early childhood to Alzheimer's to refugee resettlement and children's mental health. Um, but, you know, like I said, I have friends who like they're, they lead one organization and they have no idea what they would do after that because that is their passion. And my passion is really helping grow and sustain organizations so that they can help um, clients um, accomplish I mean, whatever it is. I mean, for us, it is resettling people um, and making sure that they are finding, um, you know, a new safe home. Um, you know, the, my last organization was Austin Child Guidance Center, and it was helping um, children, adolescents, and, and uh, young adults um, access mental health services. Okay. You mentioned earlier too that when when you and your wife had your daughters that you were uh, seemingly intentional about wanting to raise them in Austin. What about the city made you want to come back and raise your children here? Well, Austin's a great place. You know, like I said, I grew up here. Um, I and not to throw too much shade at Houston, but you know. we were sitting on freeways for hours. We were, you know, Houston had huge amounts of kind of childhood asthma. The schools were not good. Um, so I'd say that, you know, I had family here. I have friends here. I, the, the town itself is just a place that I, I, I love. I grew up here. I, um, you know, the, the schools were better, the, you know, the, there was greenery and, and even though, people complain about traffic here it is nothing compared to houston um and so you know two things i joke is like i i spent 15 years in houston and i grew to not hate houston (laughs) and then um my wife and i talked about you know back and forth about where we wanted to move for a long time i for a long time i wanted to either live in dc or san francisco uh san francisco i we can't afford in DC. 
my time to do that passed probably 30 years ago. <laughs> like it's not, I am not, yeah. Um, I've gone beyond the time where it would actually be fun to live in DC. And she wanted to move to Austin. So my joke is that we, uh, we compromised and we moved to Austin. Gotcha. Yeah. I would imagine that your background in physics, in systems, in uh, I'm, I'm sure mathematics to some degree is somewhat rare in the nonprofit world and that that might be a unique advantage for you. And I know there are movements now like GiveWell organizations that are trying to um, recommend nonprofits that are really leveraging the money that they get to actually accomplish the goals that are their mission and cut out as much red tape and bureaucracy to actually uh, be mission oriented and, and results oriented. Um, what have you found in your career as sort of a trained scientist? Uh, are are some, of the, some of the macro learnings or even micro learnings at these organizations that you feel like you've been able to contribute to really help uh, be to either scale up or to really be effective at, at, uh, being results oriented. I may have overstated, like it was a, my freshman year <laughs> of, of, uh, chemical engineering. That was it. Gotcha. <laughs> then I was business and then social work. So yeah, but you clearly could, could have a brain that's, you know, maybe oriented. I, in that I, I'm a numbers guy. I'm a data guy. Um, you know, give me, um, some, some numbers and I'll create a chart with a, with a trend analysis and, you know, multicolors and, and able to show kind of projections into the future. I think that that has been, I don't know how to, how to transition that to your question because <laughs> I just wanted to repeat it. I'm not exactly a scientist in, in any way, but I do feel like, um, I am, uh, you know, really steep kind of in the nonprofit world and, um, so some of the things that I do, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm also a teacher. So I've uh, gone back to like the, uh, the University of Texas, the School of Social Work. I've taught classes in grant writing and then um, also in financial management. And so I've got I work with uh, graduate students on that. And I have um, have some colleagues that uh, for several years we did a series of workshops on nonprofit leadership issues. So um, trying to use kind of real world examples and data to inform uh, the next generation of leaders. Gotcha. So you're, you were talking about in 2016 and your interest in, in getting into the world you, you currently inhabit. What, what about refugees specifically kind of spoke to you as being a, a potential area where you might want to spend a lot of your career and a lot of your time? Sure. Well, I'll, get, I'll, I'll start with like a personal anecdote. So um, my great grandmother, Fania, um, was uh, was helped Jews escape the pogroms in sure. Russia, where you know the the Cossacks would come and and like kind of round up the Jews and kill them. Yeah. And for uh, sorry to interrupt you, it, for for America, yeah, I, I, everybody knows about the Holocaust. If you could. If you are are comfortable speaking about a little bit in detail about what the pogroms actually were, yeah, um, I mean it I was to... it was a Russian kind of the czar would send his army to go kind of round up the others, and it was generally the Jews um, and and kill them or send them away to camps. Um, and uh, my great grandmother uh, was kind of the part of the underground that helped people escape that hmm. until her family was kind of targeted. And so 
she um, escaped with her family and ended up, um, for some reason, in Wichita Falls, Texas. Um, <laughs> and so that was, you know, I know that we had that history of kind of being refugees. Um, was she in the U.S. when she was doing that work or she was in Europe? She, at was, that in, time? she was in Russia, when she, she was in Russia okay. when she was helping people escape. Um, and, um, and so, you know, there's that kind of the personal history, but also just the um, – the idea of, you know, the, the people that we work with, the people that we help are people that are displaced from their homes that are, you know, forced across a border, um, because of war or violence, oppression, um, you know, just the most awful circumstances. They end up in, in camps where they can live for, you know, two, five, 10, you know, 15 years. Um, and then, um, if all the stars align, they end up um, getting an opportunity to uh, relocate to a third country, which, um, you know, until recently, we took like the majority of those individuals, right? And so coming here and, you know, not knowing often, not knowing the language, it completely new, you know, coming from, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo to Amarillo, Texas is a very huge culture shock, right? So the, um, the opportunity to help, um, families kind of start anew, um, was a tremendously appealing, um, opportunity for me to, to, to help build an organization that supports families as they are getting a new opportunity after like some of the most horrible experiences you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, regarding the, the, the program, just to uh, sure. add a little bit of color to that. So the, what, what, what was it about the czarist uh, philosophy or outlook that targeted Jews during the program specifically? And, and was your great grandma, great grandma able to get out of there without physical harm or, you know, severe trauma? I don't know enough history to speak to the first question, but the second question, yes. Yeah. She got out. Gotcha. Yeah. You were mentioning earlier about, and I think you just alluded to this, uh, about how, how the U.S., I believe, really historically has taken the preponderance of people who have fit mm -hmm. into that category. Would love to hear you speak to that in terms of the history of uh, the U.S.'s um, association with refugees in its sure. history. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so, you know, if you, any kind of world conflict that you can think of, um, the refugee uh, program is kind of associated with that, right? So, um, you know, th after the Vietnam War, there was a huge influx of kind of Vietnamese refugees. After um, World War II, there was a huge influx of, of Jews and of, of refugees uh, fleeing from kind of the Nazis or during World War II. Um, we have a little bit of a of a spotted history of that. It took us a while to start kind of allowing Jews to come here. Um, the you know even recently, so there was a big influx of uh, Bosnian and Croatian refugees after kind of the former Yugoslavia broke up. As a matter of fact, one of my board members was a um, a Bosnian refugee as a, as a little girl and, and moved, moved here during that conflict. Um, and so, and, and except for the current political environment, you would be seeing 
a lot of Syrians here. We started as a country accepting the Syrians because that is like the biggest humanitarian crisis that is not being addressed at the moment. Um, and then, you know, our administration, both state and, and national, kind of put a stop to that. So that is, you know, the U.S. is not um, involved in that much in helping the Syrians who have been displaced from the horrible things happening over there. What is it about the U.S. do you think that historically has led to that fact that it has been so open, generally speaking, with its spotted history, as you mentioned, periodically to refugees coming here versus other places in the world? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so until recently, we took about 70. So, okay, so what happens is after uh, refugees are kind of displaced from their country, they end up in a in a third, in a second country, right? Um, and in a refugee camp generally. So um, the vast majority of them either get resettled back into their country or into that country that they ended up in, right? So it's like 99% of refugees, um, that's what, that's kind of the disposition. Of that kind of remaining 1%, uh, they'll get uh, resettled to a third country. And until like four years ago, the U.S. took 75% of, of those resettled. Uh, you know, Canada and some other countries took, took, took that, took um, resettled refugees as well. Um, but, and the reason why is that it's just part of kind of who we are, right? Kind of welcoming um, the immigrant, welcoming the stranger, welcoming um, people who are, you know, you know, fleeing from, from kind of, terrible situations and and giving them kind of home and community here um there are lots of practical reasons to do it like it's you know you look at kind of the economics of it and um our aging workforce and like there is there's a tremendous economic argument to be made that um refugees and immigrants are going to need to make up more of our workforce because of kind of, you know, if you look at the birth rates and the aging of our population, that we're not going to have as much kind of economic growth without having um, um, immigrants and refugees and, and kind of foreign born um, um, workers um, allowed into this country. Um, it's, it's a, it helps kind of foreign policy it helps you know if we're able to ease um kind of hot spots around the world by accepting refugees um from um places that have conflict then that helps kind of um assuage assuage some of the um the conflicts um around the world so there's there are multiple reasons why and it's just that you know, it is kind of our history, you know, from um, accepting, you know, immigrants, um, you know, that we are, we're a country of, of immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and the, and refugees are um, like hardworking. And if you look at all the statistics, they end up um, like starting businesses at a higher rate than kind of, any other group, they uh, are generally self-sufficient within a very quick um, period of time. They kind of um, pay in taxes like a great times more than they um, they um, use in benefits when they when they first get here. Um, there's just lots of arguments for like accepting and welcoming refugees in the communities, and 
you know, it's it helps build make our communities more diverse and accepting. And you know, I um, one of the wonderful things I like about this organization is that anywhere from like a third to half of our staff are former refugees. Um, when um, I'm, you know, we're all over the state, and I'm just housed here because I, you know, want to live in Austin. Um, but when I the first day I came to work. They handed me, it was a new, um, it was a, a sheet with all of the um, names and titles and extensions of everybody who worked in this particular office. And it had their names, their titles, their extension, and their languages spoken. Hmm. And um, there were two that had blanks next to the languages spoken. This was kind of, I guess, except, you know, beyond English. And it was myself and one other staff person. <laughs> Um, and actually in the staff, um, in Austin alone, they speak 32 different languages. Wow. Um, and that is, you know, that's a fraction of the, the languages that, of the, the people that we work with. Um, but it's, it's just an amazing opportunity to kind of work with and meet people from such varied backgrounds and, and experiences and, and histories. You mentioned that in a refugee situation, I think you said 99% of people either go back to their original nation or stay in the country in which they had, they've left to. Mm -hmm. And then that 1% roughly comes to uh, 70% of that 1% comes to the U S how historically has the U S filtered for those people who end up coming here i would imagine a, a larger percentage than one percent would be interested in coming to the u.s how sure how have, how had we historically decided who we would allow to come here so there's there's a lot of factors involved right and it it starts with uh, so annually there's something called a presidential determination where the president says we will accept this many individuals in the, the coming year um and uh typically it will say and we'll accept this many from Africa, this many from Asia. And often it will um, reflect kind of the, the, the state of the world and or foreign policy objectives, right? So, you know, during kind of the Yugoslavia, um, when that was breaking up, it would have a lot more from kind of Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia. Um, but um, the, that, that number is kind of like the ceiling, right, of how many we will accept. Um, during the last year of the Obama administration, it was around 105,000 was the, was the ceiling. Total refugees in the world allowed. Now, in the uh, yeah. Um, from around the world that would be allowed in this country. Okay. Um, it, uh, uh, President Trump dropped it immediately and has been lowering it every year since. And it has gone down to this year. He, it's supposed to be in place by September 30th. This year he's proposed a number and hasn't even kind of signed off on it of uh, like 15,000, like down from 105 mm -hmm. um, and down from last year, down from the year before. So, so um, there, and in that there's, you know, there are still certain categories of individuals that kind of like people that are fleeing from religious persecution. Um, you know, so he's got, it's, it's just so much lower goal. Um, but, but in, uh, in, to your question of how they, how it actu actually works is so like in a normal year, if there is a goal of say 
fifty or seventy five thousand people, um, then we'll have like uh, they'll be like it will be you know Democratic Republic of Congo or from Africa or from you know potentially Venezuela may become a place where there's going to be more um, refugees or from um, from other countries where there are like these conflicts and. Um, I hope at some point that the Syrians will be, um, again, um, added to that list. Um, and then, um, there, there's, there are international organizations that decide kind of like what, how that, um, the, uh, the total population of refugees are split between countries and it, it's, it's affected by like, well, if we've said we're only going to take 15,000, we're only going to get 15,000. Right. Um, even though that is such a small percentage of, of the need out there. Um, and then the way it works here then is there are nine resettlement agencies, nine resettlement, um, kind of large agencies like a church world service and, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services and um, uh, International Rescue Committee, they get together and um, kind of look at who is um, been okayed to, to resettle. And then they'll make um, allocations based on kind of their partnerships with their kind of local agencies to say uh, where this family will go. Oftentimes, like, um, say if there's a, a family tie, so, so if somebody's like from, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo and their uncle or their, their, their husband or whatever has been resettled in Austin, they'll oftentimes come to Austin. So that will go through kind of that national agency and then they will be, that name will be sent to us, uh, cause we are at the moment the only agency being resettling, uh, people in Austin. Um, and then, you know, we'll get a little bit of notice. We go pick them up at the airport. We set them up an apartment. We, uh, you know, move them in. Um, we, you know, get them set up with services. We, you know, have, give them kind of employment uh, services and uh, ESL classes and whatever else they need to kind of get um, on their feet and um, get um, kind of set up here in the u.s and so is it right that the president unilaterally can set has the authority to set that number that ceiling number every single year that that's the right and of the of the president of the united states he is supposed to do it in consultation with congress um in the last few years that means he sends a quick note over saying this is what i'm doing um and it's going yeah and um in in a perfect world the congress has um this a say and has um some sway in what that looks like mm. uh and i hope that that comes to pass in in the years um to come um and actually there have been some some um legis there's some legislation that has been proposed that sets kind of a minimum for that um for that ceiling at like ninety five thousand, which is like the average ceiling of the years leading up to this this past administration um and that way it gives a little bit more certainty to the resettlement world and to the to even the international community of like we will take at least ninety five thousand people each year we have i mean we have the communities we have the resources we have 
the you know the infrastructure to support at least that mm-hmm. um and um so my hope is that we get back to that place and I, I actually i know we'll get back to that place because um except for this last four years resettlement has been widely embraced by both parties hmm. and let's say i think you mentioned at the end of the in obama's last year the number was around one hundred and five thousand refugees that were going to be allowed in um it, am i correct in understanding that 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 baseline number is established and then the president will sort of uh, adjust the countries from which those people come based upon the needs of individual nations, given the circumstances of current events at that time. Right. Well, so his, his last determination likely had like, and that 105,000 would be, will be, you know, 50,000 from here and 20,000 from here and 30,000 from there. Um, and so um, it, it does include that. And it usually does, have uh, a direct connection to kind of what is going on in the world and where there are displaced individuals. Um, and for many years, like the past several years, like a vast majority of the, the resettlement that we did were um, people from uh, DRC, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, mm-hmm. um, mainly because they're not Muslim. <laughs> And because there's a huge need. And so that was like the population that was able to um, to kind of get through the screening processes and get to the U.S. and be resettled. Um, we also there's also a, there are different kind of legal definitions and legal statuses. So there's something called a special immigrant visa, which are um, individuals who helped um, the U.S., usually the U.S. military. Uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan. And for a long time, we were seeing a lot of um, Iraqis. Um, that actually stopped with the travel ban, uh, but we still are seeing a lot of Afghanis. Um, so um, in addition to refugee resettlement, we see the SIVs coming in um, and we're getting a lot. Of, so we get a lot of Afghanis. We've gotten a lot of um, people from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. We, you know, from, from, uh, there's a there's a couple of other countries, and that that will change over time. You know, like I said, hopefully in a year or two, the, what we're seeing is a lot of Syrians. Um, you know, and hopefully in several years, there's not going to be as huge a need because some of it's been met, or maybe we've been able to help um, some of those places that are you know where there's a lot of refugees from. Maybe those those uh, hotspots around the world figure out ways to uh, find peace and not kind of have this huge displacement of refugees. Sure. And once the number is established and the countries are established and we have a rough idea of how many people we're going to be letting in from uh, refugee settlement areas in the world, Mm -hmm. is there a list of people that are interested in seeking asylum in the United States that we then consult and make a determination who out of the list is going to be come to the United States. How do we actually decide out of what I would imagine is a high demand, right? Which people actually get let into the United States as, as refugees. Sure. And so real quick. So there is, there's a, there is a difference between um, refugees and asylees. Okay. Right. And asylees are people who kind of, 
come on their own to and, and and that has effectively been shut down here right even people with kind of the credible threat of being harmed or killed in their home country right so and that's you'll see asylees uh, a lot from like central america that end up at our border and either end up they've been ending up in camps or being kind of you know returned to mexico or sent back to wherever you know whatever country they came from right so um that's a very good point i'm glad you brought that up yeah i mean it's a huge need and actually one of the things we've done in the last year i mean i talk about kind of what we've done to offset like our drop in resettlement is um we've been working with other populations that are displaced and so we've uh really leaned into helping people who are seeking asylum um but so the ref your your question was um the refugees, like how do they get selected, right? So the um, refugees will, um, is a, uh, it's a legal status and they apply to the UN um, and um, they'll be granted refugee status. Um, and to be able to be resettled here, there are so many hoops they have to jump through. They have to go through multiple background checks and interviews and, um, you know, health screenings and then more safe, you know, background checks and kind of going through the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and then they once you know, there's usually like a small window where like they've gone through all of these checks, their family's gone through all of these checks, things are ready. And then they said, OK, you can travel within this time period. Right. And so then this family is ready to be resettled. Their, their names go to like this group of those nine agencies and they decide, okay, well, where, you know, like has, have we resettled, you know, we settled a lot in Texas or like what, like what agency should take these people on? Are they coming to, you know, to live with other family or is there a, you know, a Bhutanese community in Abilene that we should, you know, move, move them to if we can. Right. Um, so the, those kinds of, um, things happen after they've gone through kind of the, the long screening process. Gotcha. And once they are, what that duration of time, like you said, it sounds like there are, there's a lot that has to be done paperwork wise and vetting before they ever think about getting on an airplane and moving their life to the United States. How long does it, that average period of time take for someone from the, first interest in uh, becoming a refugee in the United States and actually being granted that status? So uh, I will have to look at my kind of the, the facts to, to I can give you my, what I, what I think I remember sure. is like um, on average, I believe that um, people are in refugee camps seven to 10 years. Right. Uh, and the process is very slow and very difficult. And anything off can make you start over. For instance, there has been like a ban on actual air travel in the last several months because of COVID. So we're starting to see they're allowing people to get back on, you know, into travel, but like they have to start a lot of things over again. Um, there's also um, the, uh, a U.S. agency, um, the U.S. CRI, uh, Citizen and Refugee. I don't know if I've got that acronym right. Um, but they do what's called circuit rides where they go and interview 
um, people who are seeking um, a refugee status in the U.S. Um, and so, and then they get kind of on the list to potentially be resettled. And those have stopped since COVID. And they were actually being, you know, curtailed anyway because of the administration. Like the administration has set up a lot of different roadblocks to, to stop, slow down, and just kind of eviscerate the refugee program. Um, so there are fewer people that, that are considered in the pipeline. Um, and then once you are in the pipeline, there are a lot of different things that have to happen until um, you get kind of certified to, to travel. And then you've got a short window of opportunity. And a lot of those windows have expired. And so it's, um, you know, we have to see in the next several months what happens to the people who were certified um, but lost that window of opportunity if they'll have to go back through all of the, you know, the hoops again, which they probably will. Hmm. And if they'll be able to, to resettle, but just take a little bit longer time. You have seen, I'm sure dozens of dozens or hundreds of people come into central Texas and uh, yeah, they've been through that probably years of time before they're actually in the U S and moving their lives into America. What is that experience like for those people? I mean, you know, this organization often is that olive branch that picks these people up from the airport as they've flown to Texas to start over again. Uh, I'm sure it's different for every family and every person, but what is in your judgment? I would love to hear some of the stories about what, what sure. it's like for the people who actually arrive here. Yeah. I, I would say it's both life changing and completely bewildering, <laughs> right? I mean, you are moving from like your home country. You've been in a refugee camp displaced for you know, maybe a decade and you end up in Texas <laughs> and, you know, um, and either in the heat or as it is today, the cold of Austin. <laughs> um, and, um, but, but it is, you know, the ones, um, I mean, probably the, the ones I interact with most are our, our staff who have been uh, former refugees. Um, and it they are like so happy to have kind of a another chance, right? Um, we celebrated a few months back. One, uh, We have an individual here who, who of those 32 languages that he speaks seven. Wow. <laughs> um, and he'd been working for a long time to get his wife here. And she um, was finally, it was a little bit before COVID, um, was able to travel and kind of reunite. It had been years, been a couple of years since um, he'd seen her. So it is, they are, they're resilient and patient and, um, you know, they're navigating like a completely new world, right? So we have things like we have bus orientation, right? So we'll take people and show them how to get on a bus and what to do and how to get off and how to, you know, and, you know, just basic kind of cultural skills, life skills there, as you can imagine, if you like moved to, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo, you'd have no idea how to, how to navigate the world there. Um, but if you were fleeing from a place where you feared for your life, then, um, you know, you'd be happy and <laughs> bewildered at the same time. I mean, we've got uh, one of my board members is um, 
uh, a uh, he was on the um, High Court of Bhutan, not Bhutan. I'm remember I'm misremembering, but um, he was on the High Court of his country, and there were kind of uh, you know government death squads going out and killing judges, and so okay. he took his family and and uh, they fled, ended up in a refugee camp. And uh, then they were eventually resettled here. And actually, like, um, the, um, the first thing that I did when, uh, after, uh, after I was hired was uh, we have – there's a refugee um, – World Refugee Days in June. And each year we have, except for, you know, during COVID – we have a gathering um, and a celebration, and there's a uh, a um, citizenship ceremony. And actually, before I started to work, I went to that in June of 2018, and he spoke at that, um, talking about his story and like kind of fleeing for his life and fearing for his family's life. Um, and he spoke to there's like 20 people getting their citizenship uh, from, you know, I think 15 or 16 different countries. It was just completely moving. Um, I found out later that he actually, he worked, he works at a place called IACT, which is an, uh, another organization in town that works with refugees. Um, and uh, we reached out to him and said, we would love to have you on our board of directors. And so he was one of the first new board members that we added when we started adding board members. Um, and it's, really amazing to like hear his story and to hear like the story of the the staff people that have come you know have been so resilient and so like they they come from like such different worlds um but now they are part of kind of the community yeah yeah i wonder i i think probably you've traveled internationally it's always fascinating how newcomers to new cultures notice things that locals have just sort of taken for granted oftentimes mm -hmm. are there any themes you notice of these people who arrive you were mentioning about doing the uh, sort of bus walkthrough about yeah. their experience in entering austin and american culture generally that is consistently surprising or bewildering to them as to how we live and what daily life tends to be like around here i don't i don't know if i can give a a, a quality answer to that my i don't like so i'm kind of more on the macro side and i have less kind of daily interaction with the um with the the clients that we serve especially now um i did i will say that like um when uh before covid i would uh i went out and did several of the kind of airport pickups and um volunteered and do an apartment setup and all of that and i'd love to and like sat in on esl class and so just watching uh, a group of um congolese learning english and going through those lessons um so i i don't know that i can give a a quality answer to that for like sure what the different i mean i probably more tacos here than <laughs> anywhere else <laughs> the people who get refugee status in the u.s and arrive here are is that a immediate uh they they receive an immediate right to be gainfully employed in the u.s with a short path to citizenship what is the what is the immediate 
what are the immediate right. rights of people who land here? And, and there's an expectation of of employment, right? So right. Uh, we are. There's an expectation that they are self sufficient fairly quickly. As a matter of fact, um, they're required to pay off the travel. Like we kind of loan them the travel to get here and they they have to pay that off but part of that process is it's a kind of a long-term travel loan that they pay off and helps them establish credit mm-hmm. right um they but they do generally you know find employment it's kind of like the, um but what you know what you would imagine is you know you got people coming here that are lawyers and have come from different um you know professions that end up getting um kind of the first best job available, right? And oftentimes it's, um, you know, working at hotels or restaurants, which has been difficult in COVID times. Um, like we we have a, we had a pretty big um, uh, resettlement community in Amarillo and we hope to have it again because there are the two really big meatpacking plants there, right? And there's a lot of good jobs up there. Um, so yeah, they are, but they do get their their um i think it's within 2 years they're able to get their green card and then 5 years they are uh, they can get citizenship and i can look up those the numbers i have i'm kind of quoting that off the top of my head and i, I told you about my medical problems earlier <laughs> um, so um yeah they are they have that uh they have that path toward um citizenship and there is a there's a high percentage of them that take that and end up becoming citizens, um, generally as soon as they can. Um, but there is a uh, an expectation because our services we'll provide them um, like mainly our services are intensive for the first six months, where we're helping with uh, some financial assistance, but also services for kind of employment and and case management and things like that. We have some services that can uh, last up to five years, um, but the most intensive services where we're connecting them to services and helping them get, you know, job skills and all of that are for the first six months that they, they've arrived here. Yeah. I would imagine the just the process and the persistence and resilience that's required to e- even end up here is selecting for people who have those qualities by nature. And have the intelligence to know how to navigate that bureaucracy to get here and um, and then have some of the personality traits that would make for a great citizen mm-hmm. um, and a productive member of society. Um, they The jobs you were mentioning that the, the jobs that people generally take when they get here are uh, in the restaurant industry. How have the refugees that you have seen ad- adapted to the COVID environment? Well, are they having to get different types of jobs? Are they more unemployed than they normally are? How are they dealing with They're that? They're more unemployed. Um, there, yeah, there's been uh, a direct, a direct um, kind of financial effect. And so actually in the last hmm, eight months or so, we've put a lot of our efforts into seeking out and accessing funds to help, um, uh, bridge financial difficulties for our families. So like not all of them are running into the, these problems, but there's a lot of like, um, financial issues and, and meeting rent and utilities and, um, and, you know, the digital divide and finding, you know, getting money to help get their children, um, you know, 
tablets and laptops to do kind of distance learning. Um, but yeah, we're, we're seeing that there is, um, you know, they are often starting out in the service industry and the service industry has been hit really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know you were, you were mentioning some of the numbers that of the number of refugees that were coming into the U S in the Obama years and that you hope uh, more Syrians will be let in in the future. If you were King or if you were the president and you could set the the numbers for how many people you think that the U S should be letting in per year, what do you think is reasonable, um, for, you know, a country that's obviously pretty divided right now on issues of immigration and, um, you know, the, the nature of what it means to have a country, what, what in your mind seems like a, a reasonable number in terms of, of, of that, um, that total? I think that, so there's a, a, a 95,000 number that has been, um, has been put into legislation that I hope kind of keeps getting introduced until it passes as a, as a minimum with, um, you know, the ability to kind of ramp it up to help accommodate like um, spe- special needs, like if there are spe- like d- specific countries or conflicts that need um, kind of additional assistance. Um, we clearly have the capacity to serve, you know, a lot more than we do, right? And we were able to, uh, um, you know, we never got to the 95,000 cap um but um we were we as a country had that um had that ability um and can get there again pretty easily Mm -hmm. because there are hundreds of agencies like us out there doing this i mean far fewer than there used to be right so the 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 resettlement network has been pretty devastated over time um so um it will require some ramping up and some rebuilding. Um, but, um, this country, I think for, for kind of the diversity of our communities, for our workforce, for our kind of moral standing, I would, you know, 95,000 to me is a minimum. Yeah. Uh, and we have the capability of doing that, right? We, um, in 2016, RST alone welcomed 2,500 people. Last year, it was down to 600, right? And that is has been steadily declining. Um, but we we can do a lot more than 2,500. Um, we resettle um, in the neighborhood of like four percent of every individual that comes to the United States it comes through um, Refugee Services of Texas, right? And so, if, say we can do 5,000, then then the country can do 25 times that, right? <laughs> 125,000, right. right? Maybe I do have uh, some science <laughs> skills in there. <laughs> and, and so, the, the, you know, we're obviously sitting in the in the Austin office having this conversation. What? Tell me about the network of RST generally sure. throughout Texas. Is is where its biggest offices? Where where is it plugging people in sure. into Texas? Yeah. So, um, actually Austin is now our, our biggest office. Um, we started up in Dallas, um, and that is still, you know, our second biggest office. Um, but we, from Dallas, we expanded to, uh, Fort Worth. I don't know exactly the order, but Fort Worth, Houston, 
um, Amarillo, Austin, um, and then our latest um, site, we've got one down in Harlingen in the Rio Grande Valley. Mm. Um, and that one actually um, uh, kind of reflects the, the part of the diversity of what we've been, uh, kind of the sustainability and diversity of populations that we've been serving. I talked about kind of the asylum seekers, but another really big area that we've gotten into over the last several years is services to survivors of trafficking. So uh, we work with both uh, international and domestic survivors of labor and sex trafficking. Um, and we have, um, you know, funding from both the federal and the state government to do that. And that those programs are expanding all over the state. And th there's a huge need there. And so our, actually our, our um, office down in the Rio Grande Valley, that's primarily the population that they work with, right? So each of our offices looks different based on the populations that they serve and kind of the, the communities that they're in. So in Austin, we have some survivors of trafficking. We do have a lot of resettlement activities here. Um, in Houston, we have a pretty large program where we're helping um, unaccompanied um, um, children. Um, children have been separated from their families or people like, you know, there was a big wave uh, a couple of big waves of kids who came to the border alone. So kind of helping them um, get services and connect in with family. Um, and we have um, immigration legal services. We call them low bono services. We provide them here in Austin and up in Dallas. And we're hoping to expand that because there's a big need for kind of um, accessible, affordable immigration services to these families. Um, we also are, like I said, we're, we've started working with, um, asylum seekers. Um, so just different populations in need so as the resettlement numbers have gone down the, you know, we've been working with more survivors and working with more, um, asylum seekers and more people that need immigration services, immigration legal services. Gotcha. You were mentioning a little bit ago about how the financial component of this works where, um, RST provides some upfront costs to get the refugees into the U S and, uh, generally gets that money back and establishes a, some form of credit for the, the refugees is how do you, how does your team get the initial capital to front that money? And is it correct that the idea is that a hundred percent of the money that you lend eventually will be repaid to the organization? Well, so let me, I'm, let me correct that. I apologize for uh, mischaracterizing that. So it is actually, there's a government, it, the money comes from the, the U.S. government that uh, pays for the travel. And then there, um, the refugees kind of work directly with uh, a particular, um, uh, it's called ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, and with travel loans. So um, we don't, we, we don't, Blend money for travel. But uh, my point earlier was that refugees do, are required to pay back like their travel here. Um, the, the money that we get, um, we get um, like for every person that we uh, resettle, we get a certain amount of money that helps uh, both like provide them with um, a small amount of cash um, as well as uh, provide services through 
you know, you know, offering classes or case manager or whatever, and then a much smaller amount to help us, um, you know, cover our operating expenses. So for every, um, refugee, there's, I think it's like $1,200, um, and like 200 comes to our, uh, operating expenses and a thousand dollars either goes toward like cash and gift cards and food and whatever for them. Um, but also to provide services. So that's how the, the, the money works. And it's, and it's why kind of our budget has shrunk over the years because as our numbers go down, our, the funding goes down. Yeah. How in your, you know, I think a lot of people in this town, um, their hearts go out to people who, are on their way here and are interested in trying to help what in as the leader of this organization, what, what's the biggest, um, need, you know, if you, if you could elicit more help from the general uh, community right now, what, how, how can people help? What's the best way that they can assist you guys? I think once we get beyond COVID time, I think there are amazing opportunities to, to volunteer. There are, um, and you said you've, you were yeah. done this yourself, like, um, being on a welcome team. Um, we have, there's some amazing there, like a lot of faith, um, uh, instant, uh, like churches and, and other, uh, organizations that provide like a group of volunteers who will help, um, greet a family and set up an apartment and help kind of help them in their first few weeks while they're here. So that is both a, a huge need as well as a really rewarding experience. Um, and as I said, resettlement is going to kick back up into high gear. And so like starting now to get, um, get into kind of the volunteer pipeline, uh, for when we're going to need a bunch of volunteers, I think would be great. I, you know, as, as the CEO, I'll always say financial resources are always very useful. Um, and, um, what I really love about uh, this this cause and this organization and, and just my community is that, you know, every time something negative is happens in, in kind of either from the administration or in the, the news, people step up. People, you know, we get a bunch of volunteers, we get a bunch of donations, right? We People want to figure out how they can make a difference, how they can help. And that was kind of my theory when I was kind of coming into this is I want to, I don't know, I know I need to do something, but I don't know what. And then this opportunity for this job came up and I'm like, that's my opportunity. I'm like, I want to make sure that other people see that. It's like, okay, here is a concrete place to make a difference. Uh, and people have done that. People have said, okay, this is, you know, this is not right. What, what is going on? And then, you know, the refugee numbers and the, you know, the fact that last week they announced that they've lost, what, 550 families? It's like, how do you do that? Um, and people step up and, like, they they become part of our advisory committees. They donate. They become volunteers. They, they volunteer to do ESL classes or we've got a sewing collective here. It's like all sorts of wonderful opportunities. Um and they're, they're different in all of our communities, right? So, you know, they may look a little bit different in Dallas or Houston, um, but there's great opportunities to be involved. And the easiest way for people who hear this and might, might want to get involved, whether it's in Austin or some other Texas city, 
is it to email the organization? Is it to call? What what's the what's the best first step? Go to the website rstx.org. Okay. Final question I want to ask you is sure. about the future and how you see RST in three to five years. If if you uh, you know could paint the the rosiest outlook for uh, for the the near term future for um, you know the country and and also for the organization, what does that look like in your mind? Um, well. I firmly believe that refugee resettlement will kick into high gear soon. Um, and, um, you know, kind of my mantra has been since I came here a little over two years ago that we need to survive until we can thrive. Um, we've survived, survived, survived. <laughs> I, I actually just did use that word. We've survived. Um, and we've been able to do that through kind of amazing staff and, and diversifying our funding and our programs and the populations that we served. Um, and we are actually, you know, we are, we're coming out of COVID whenever that is, um, stronger and with, you know, more staff, more programs than we've, we had before. Um, and, um, the reason why, you know, we wanted to survive till we can thrive is that so many other agencies have gone under, right? So in Austin, uh, Caritas used to, um, was our sister agency in resettlement. I hope, hopefully they'll, they'll be able to come back to it, but they stopped a couple of years ago. It just, there were so many external threats that a lot of agencies either stopped resettling or went under completely. And so being the largest in Texas and one of the largest in the country, we knew that we needed to be part of the solution when resettlement kicks back into high gear, right? When we come out of this temporary insanity and decide that we really do still believe in embracing people that are fleeing from violence, oppression, and war. Um, and so to do that, you know, I, so what I see in three to five years is that we are, we are growing, right? We're built, we're just kicking off a strategic planning process where that's going to be one of our biggest questions is like, what does growth look like for us? How do we do that sustainably? How do we ensure that we're part of the solution when resettlement kicks into high gear? Cause it will, I mean, whether you believe it's going to be in the next several months or, after one more administration, it will happen because it's just it's like the facts are every administration until this one has embraced resettlement. So whether it's a few months from now, which I believe will happen, or a few years from now, um, it's going to happen. Right. And so we will be ready to to kick back into to, to high gear. Um, you know, we may look at other locations, we may look at satellite. Um, so we'll be continuing to, to serve survivors of trafficking. We'll be welcoming more and more refugees into our communities. We are building up our kind of our advocacy efforts. Um, and, uh, we'll just be bigger, better, and a part of the solution and helping, people find a new place, a new home and, uh, you know, building our communities. 
Well, I wish you the best of luck, and and I really appreciate the uh, the time and and all the details about what you guys do here, and I, I hope you have a. Um, great success and, and a wonderful future in the next three to five years and beyond. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to ch- chat with you. You too, Russell. Thanks.